Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. Hello, it's Ollie here from the Japan by River Cruise podcast. This week, we'd like to use this time to send a special message from us at Japan by River Cruise to our good friends at Internet Explorer, on which we've always relied for the messaging function of our website. Otsukare sama desu. On behalf of us and all of the Japanese companies that will sorely mourn the loss of your services. Rest assured, tonight, we'll be cracking open an ice-cold Zima in your honour. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Matthew Boynton, the owner of Sakamichi Brewing and the guy who helped us develop our JBRC-branded craft beer made with real Shizuoka-grown hops and real riverboat runoff water, which we call Raft Beer. Half a year of workshopping it, and that was the best we could come up with. Thank you for joining us, Matthew. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Ollie. It's a pleasure to be here. On this week's show, how health concerns are reshaping Japan's drinking culture, including at-home nomikais and indoor smoking bans, and thank God for the latter. I am sick to death of cigarette smoke endangering my health when I'm trying to enjoy some chicken skewers fresh off of my table's indoor charcoal grill. Plus, Ali's got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali? Thank you, Bobby. Yes, this week's recommendation is the River Cruise Disaster Prevention and Education Center in the city of Saku in the Nagano Prefecture. Here guests can experience a series of river cruise related disaster simulations ranging from oh no we didn't realize we had to print the tickets ourselves they won't let us show them on our phone this is a disaster disaster experience to the river cruise boat takes a wrong turn and is hijacked by somalian pirates in the arabian sea this is a disaster disaster experience both of which by the way i cannot recommend enough to nervous travelers who want to reassure themselves that as long as they have proof of purchase and some form of firearm they will always be able to board the boat and defend it from looters don't make the mistake which i made though as you will need your passport if you want to venture off the gulf of arden into somalia for souvenir shopping plus we'll take a look into the ongagawa river cruise that made me sign a waiver to release them from liability in the event that my organs were harvested <laughs> those kind of disclaimers are the ones where you can just tell that they've only got them because some idiot got their organs harvested and then tried to sue the company or something yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a funny backstory there. More on that later, but first, Soap Talk. Matthew, you started your own microbrewery selling craft beer. Uh, that's right, yes. Uh, we are Sakamichi Brewing, and we are located in Tachikawa, which is in the west of Tokyo. So what was it about men in their mid-30s devoid of a hobby and personality that made you want to spend so much more time with them? <laughs> well, that's an excellent question. Um, I had been an English teacher for about 10 years beforehand, so I felt that those were my people, uh, and I needed to <laughs> devote, I needed to give back to the community. And the one thing that you know that those people need is, is beer, is to get drunk. That's a pretty vile slur. <laughs> he's only slurring because he's had a few. <laughs> But it is a semi-serious point that I do know people that reach that point where there aren't any hobbies left for them. 
And they get completely obsessed with craft beer and they'll make it their mission to go and seek out microbreweries and sit in a pub and talk about hops. Were you this obsessed or did it just seem like a fun thing to do? Um, I don't know if I was ever that obsessed. Uh, I certainly enjoyed drinking beer and I enjoyed um, fascinating all of my friends with very in-depth conversations about the different kinds of hops uh, that we used. Um, but what we've found since opening our brewery is that uh, the consumers here in Tachikawa almost defy that stereotype. So I'd say perhaps 50% of our customers are actually female, which was a surprise for me, certainly. <laughs> it's like, Hang on a minute, what are these women doing around me? <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I'm used to. Um, and <laughs> and also, we, we cater a lot more to, to just local consumers. So when we were starting out, we said, okay, well, who is our target market here? We have a target, which is craft beer fans. And that's the kind of person who is willing to travel uh, for two hours to, to try a new brewery, is always looking for new styles of beer to try for, for new and adventurous tastes. Um, but then locally in Tachikawa, there's, there's a huge market here of people who just don't have access to craft beer. Uh, and yeah. what we try to do is to provide uh, a space for, for that kind of consumer, for somebody who perhaps has never tried craft beer before and, and is interested to find out more about it. So we always try and be very approachable. We have quite a well-lit tap room. Uh, everything is available in English and Japanese, and we're very happy to answer questions uh, that any of our guests might have. You mentioned that your clientele is about 50% female. And I know that in Japan, a Japanese style of marketing would be to immediately go, this is what's popular with women. Jose ni ninki, or like, onanoko ni dai ninki. Like, that's the way that they sell things. That's how I used to promote my comedy shows. Used to. Yeah, apparently you're not allowed to lie. <laughs> but yeah, no, when you go to a restaurant here, to an izakaya or something like that, there'll be items on the menu that say, popular with women, Jose ni... Ureshi seibun ga like this has got nutritional elements that are great for women. There's all this like marketing to females that would be sexist overseas. Yeah, I was going to say, Bobby, is your question, why are you not using sexist marketing? Yes. Do you feel like you have to use sexist marketing because you're in a sexist country? Um, so we feel, we, we do not feel that we have to use sexist marketing, uh, but we do occasionally <laughs> like easiest, have to. That was our easiest <laughs> question to answer. <laughs> you, you really lobbed that one up over the home plate there for me. Should, should, we, should we try a couple more quick fire questions? Are you racist? <laughs> uh, no. Um, and do you think there should be a mosque built on the 9-11 site? Yes, I do. Several mosques, in fact. <laughs> why, why stop at one? Um, so it, to, to respond to, to your question, Bobby, um, occasionally we do have to uh, respond to, to customers who come in with these preconceptions in mind. And um, we have our, our beers listed up on boards behind the bar. And occasionally customers will come in and they just have, they have no frame of reference. So they mm. ask for our guidance in what they should order. Uh, and occasionally customers, and including female customers, will say, well, what's popular with women? Yeah. And my usual response is, well, all of them are. They're all good beers. What kind of beer do you like? Or what kind of flavors do you like? Can you tell me another drink that you've enjoyed? What kind of thing are you looking for here? Because all of the consumers are different. And it's, it's really not a binary this is a men's beer and this is a, a women's beer kind of issue. That's exactly what I wanted to know because a Japanese way of doing that, you know, the restaurants that I've worked in in Japan would be to go like, well, this beer has feminine qualities or, you know, this beer has collagen in it or they would do something like that that would assume that there is a binary difference. 
Yes, it's certainly been the case uh, when we've been talking to, for example, the bank uh, about getting funding for the brewery. And they, they wanted to know uh, in a lot of detail about our marketing plans. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay, well, how are you going to market this brewery to women? What are you going to do to appeal to women? Are you going to put up pink decorations? Are you going to have fluffy scatter cushions around? My goodness. And we have to say, no, we're, you, we're not going to do any of those things. Can you imagine the credit risk department of a local bank <laughs> having a checklist of, uh, like, they open up the folder, new pub being open, what, then a checkbox of what do women like? Doilies. Have they bought doilies? <laughs> yes. In that case, give them $100,000. <laughs> well, if, if it was as easy as that to get $100,000, we would buy some doilies. <laughs> um, so we went to uh, the bank, uh, me and my business partner, Daniel, uh, and asked them for some money because we wanted to start uh, a brewery. And one of the reasons that we uh, actually chose Tachikawa is because they have uh, some fairly generous uh, business support programs here for new business. Mm. Uh, and I had to go to a whole bunch of seminars um, to learn about how businesses operate in order to qualify for the chance to apply to maybe get some money from the Tachikawa government. So it was about, let's see, about a six, seven month process to go through all the seminars to, to fill in the interminal about of, uh, of paperwork uh, that we had to do uh, and to really drill down through several layers of Japanese bureaucracy um, to be told, no, we will not be giving you any money. Oh. So that, that, was, that was a real journey for us. Uh, and it is quite expensive to start uh, a brewery. Um, it's an equipment game, really. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we tried going to the bank. We tried going to several different places. And there were, there were just too many red flags. Um, two non-Japanese people working in uh, you know, the alcohol industry. Uh, with an unproven business model. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, guys, they haven't even got any doilies. <laughs> so you self-funded and you opened in March. That's right, yes. Uh, classic timing on our part. Opening in March and then having to kind of reevaluate your business plan and your business strategy uh, due to the COVID crisis is going to lead us nicely into the news for this week. But real quick, let's take a, a look at our mail. We got an email. We did. The Brianist Brian writes, So happy to hear that my messages were not being read because of some problem with the website and not because you guys were just ignoring them. And then he writes some other stuff too, but I didn't read it. Let's ignore it. And let's take a look at the news. Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? We've been tracking stories about how Japan's dining out culture and drinking culture has been changing due to health concerns. And this is from before COVID. Uh, we kind of wanted to talk about the indoor smoking ban and how it had been playing out, but we got derailed by COVID. And then COVID itself is also uh, in the news for changing the nomikai culture and changing the culture of eating and drinking out at restaurants in general. Uh, Matthew, as somebody who is in an industry that's very, very affected by this, uh, what aspects of this story have you been paying attention to? Yeah, so obviously uh, the economic infrastructure of uh, Japan is the prime mover of social change here. Uh, and I found that this article was really interesting because it showed how a change, a disruption to the, the mode of production due to COVID and due to the lockdown. Um, you've got more people working from home and increased use of remote communications technology. This has led to a, a, a change in drinking culture in Japan as well. So before we talk about the change to drinking culture in general, presumably COVID has had a direct impact on your business. Like people aren't coming into the shop. 
Absolutely, that's right. Uh, we we opened in mid March, uh, and then when the declaration of emergency <laughs> this year, yes, uh, brilliant timing on our part, brilliant timing. <laughs> um, and so, when the uh, the emergency declaration came uh, in Tokyo in April, we took the decision that we needed to close our tap room at least temporarily, um, because at the time our only way of doing business was for for customers to come and stand inside uh, and and drink beer. Uh, and and that was pretty much what was explicitly forbidden by Governor Koike. Right. Um, and so we we decided to temporarily close whilst we could uh, apply for the necessary licenses to do takeout sales. One thing that occurs to me as I'm listening to that is explicitly forbidden. Uh, was it was explicitly forbidden, but with no real consequences. So when you decided to close down and go in a different direction, there wasn't because of any financial consequences that you might face was it um not direct financial consequences we weren't going to be fined or imprisoned um we we learned about uh the uh, the lockdown um requirements basically by watching the news the same as everyone else did uh and we looked at uh, what governor koike was saying and we looked at our business model uh, and we just didn't see how it was possible to to remain open whilst uh protecting um the the sanmitsu the the three requirements um, for, for non-transmission of COVID-19. And switching to a takeout model, how does that work for a craft beer brewery? Yeah, isn't the whole point of a craft beer that you stay there and show off? <laughs> you, you absolutely have to be able to post online about the beer that you were drinking. That's, that's a key part of the experience. Um, so I think one of the accepted views of Japanese society, um, and maybe one of your previous guests mentioned uh, a point similar to this, is that it's very resistant to change and very slow to adapt. Um, and that certainly was our experience. So we, we wanted to, to be able to get a license to allow us to do takeout sales. Uh, and so we went to our local tax office who, who grant those licenses. And we, we asked what would be necessary in order to apply for that. Uh, and we're told that it would require 30 pages of, of legal Japanese documents to be filled in and filed. And then the whole process would take two to three months to complete. Uh, and I remember very clearly in this meeting saying to the tax officer, well, well, look, is it not possible to be flexible at all here? Because in two to three months, I was saying this in April, in two to three months, we'll all be back to normal. And this will all have gone away. <laughs> um, the, the Olympics will be about to start. Oh, ye of too much faith. <laughs> uh, and, and he you know, shook his head very solemnly and he said, I'm very sorry, but there, there is no flexibility here. Um, but then two days later, we got a we got a call from the tax office uh, to ask us to come in, uh, and they said, um, "Yes, yeah, so we've changed the system, and you actually only need to fill in this one page form, and the license is going to take two days to process, not two to three months." So it seems yeah. that flexibility is possible if sort of the societal forces align themselves in the right way. That synthesis can come very very quickly. Just generally, is it easy to get a license to brew alcohol and sell it? Uh, absolutely not. It is, it is a very long and complicated procedure. And uh, one of the requirements uh, that's now in place is that if you are uh, brewing beer, you need to have the capacity to make 60,000 liters or more of it in a year in order to, to get that license. Uh, that's oh, actually wow. quite a lot of beer. Um, and of course, if you're making 60,000 liters, you also have to be able to sell 60,000 liters. Yeah of beer. What's the logic of that requirement? That's an excellent question. Um, Thank you. From my perspective, it seems like it is a protectionist move to to prevent small up-and-coming breweries from, from disrupting the market as it currently exists. 
That's very much from my perspective, though. But for the longest time, small breweries couldn't even exist in Japan, could they? That's true. That's true. Uh, there was a relaxation in the laws about about 20 years ago, I think, which led to the first gbiru boom, um, local beer boom uh, here in Japan. Uh, and not to, to make too terrible a pun, but that left a bit of a terrible taste in a lot of customers' mouths. I don't get um, it. Because... <laughs> I'll explain it to you later. Because uh, a lot of what would, would happen was that local towns, in order to make a tourist product, would, would just make a, a bog standard beer and then dump a whole load of whatever they, they were famous for locally producing into it. So that could be strawberries, it could be mikans, it could be gyoza. My God. I think there's an element of not only a demand for higher end products, but also a demand for, regardless of quality, a greater variety of products. If you think about all of the brands in Japan that release, you know, seasonal flavors or flavors that are only available in this area of Japan and just churn out these new varieties of flavors to increase uh, their profits, to, to get more attention and to create kind of a buzz around their products, uh, I think that's a really easy way to market things in Japan. And so by expanding more varieties of flavors of chuhai or more varieties of beer or craft beer, maybe they're just going for an easy cash grab. Yeah, it certainly looks like um, the big breweries have decided to, to get into the craft beer scene um, because they see it becoming more profitable uh, and increasing in its market share rather than for any particular passion for, for quality of, uh, of product. So maybe this craft beer movement in Japan is suggesting there's a new kind of person that wouldn't have typically gone for the generic beers, but are looking for a completely differentiated product. So when we had to switch to a, a takeout-only model um, for the last two weeks of April, um, we were surprised, actually, uh, that our experience of our consumers was that they were, they were really flexible and showed a level of initiative that we hadn't been expecting and perhaps might be surprising to, to people who have a stereotypical view uh, of Japanese people. Um, we, we switched to a, a, a takeout-only model. And so what customers had to do was to, to bring their own growlers or suitable containers for them to take the beer out of the taproom in. We had a small supply of plastic cups that we could use. Um, but we were looking for a supply a supplier who would be able to, to, to give us growlers that we could sell to our customers. It's actually quite difficult because that's not actually a common thing to do in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and we were surprised that a lot of the customers, once we said we wanted to do this takeout only, showed initiative and went and sourced their own growlers and would show up to the taproom <laughs> with... Uh, insulated water bottles with beer growlers that they had imported from overseas, even with sort of glass display bottles from IKEA, is what some of them seem to be. I will say I'm very, very glad that this worked out for your business and, and that it was a positive development for your business. But I do want to make sure that I make it clear that I am not at all surprised that Japan did what it had to do to get drunk. <laughs> like, does it, it doesn't, like the delivery method doesn't matter. To me, the product doesn't even necessarily matter. There is this huge portion of the Japanese population, perhaps like the gentleman who wrote this article, who is just like, get me as much alcohol into my system however you can. And uh, it was interesting actually reading the article that I think the, the author seemed to be very much wishing for a return to normal. Uh, he wanted things to go back to normal and he wanted to be able to have a, a, a big mug of ice-cold draft beer in a really smoky izakaya. And one, one thing that really struck me there is that that's actually impossible because from the 1st of April, there has been a smoking ban in place. 
yeah. in, in Tokyo in preparation for the Olympics, which I'm, I'm assuming will be starting soon, right, guys? <laughs> That's coming up soon, right? <laughs> I haven't been following the news that closely. Um, yeah. So, so he's not going to be able to go back to that smoky izakaya. And I guess it does show that when the societal situation is ripe for change, it can yeah. come very quickly in Japan. Now, does this mean that Japanese society as a whole is going to be greatly changed by the lockdown? Um, I'm afraid that goes slightly beyond my training as a brewer. Well, but, uh, but I would hope so. I, I think it's interesting what it's revealed about what I've kind of always suspected about Japanese society. Because as the article mentions, you know, Japan puts this emphasis, Japan does this itself. It places this emphasis on their social drinking culture and going out after work because it's a professional obligation and that's how business gets done. There's all these stories that Japan tells about itself, but Corona takes that all away and the article talks about the uptick in drinking at home. Not necessarily like uh, Zoom nomikais, not necessarily online remote drinking parties, but just drinking at home and an uptick in alcoholism. And it, it to me, it kind of looks like that was always there and everything else was just a cover to let you drink your drink. Right. It is true that um, Japan has its fair share of high functioning alcoholics, but um, then those are the people keeping my lights on. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have a podcast co-host for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so do you think there is actually anything particularly special about Japan's drinking culture? And I don't ask this question as a means of belittling Japan, but I mean this just that basically every country I go to, with the exception of some majority Muslim ones, have a culture of drinking a lot, and they're proud of that fact, and they like beer. It's actually very hard to think of a country that doesn't take pride in drinking beer. Is there anything particularly exceptional about Japan? Uh, one thing that we've noticed is that uh, the, the customers who come to our bar tend to always be drawn to the highest alcohol beers that we offer. Not all of them, of course, but, <laughs> but we have this perception of Japanese people being, you know, fairly weak drinkers. But if we have something on the menu that's eight and a half, nine, nine and a half percent, that, that attracts attention. Uh, and yeah. those beers tend to sell out fast as well. This reminds me of a Mitchell and Webb sketch where a man walks in and pretends to buy a whole grocery basket of items. I was thinking about that exact sketch <laughs> and he, he doesn't have the money and he keeps kind of like Just reducing these items. two in. cans of yes, high-strength yes, continental yes. lager. And yes. I'll just sit down and drink them on the stoop, shall I? <laughs> I think one of the best lines is when the shopkeeper says, yes, that is the highest amount of alcohol per... It's, it's the most alcohol at, in the highest volume at the cheapest possible price. Exactly. And yeah. then he says, yes. So I think I'll buy these to quench my perishing thirst. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring it back to the UK because almost the opposite is happening there now. Um, the the trends with, with drinking in the UK now tends to be towards... Uh, lower alcohol beers and small beers uh, and things that, that don't get you as blasted as quickly. Yeah, and America has actually seen a reduction in the amount of, I think, alcohol consumption during... Bobby, I'm sorry to say that's just because most Americans are now dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably a large part of it, yeah. But, but just the idea of the drinking culture, like... As an American, we do drink. A lot of people do take pride in their beer drinking. You know, we do keg stands at frat parties and things like that. But I don't think there's the same language around having a drinking culture that you see in like Japan or Scotland or, or any of these other, like Australia, I, I would say probably considers that they have a drinking culture. 
I think in America, a lot of what other countries call drinking cultures, we call alcoholism. Yes, Bobby, I agree that it's difficult to imagine the word culture being appropriately appended to anything American. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if this is for broadcast, but I remember after, do you remember after uh, the Iranian general Soleimani was assassinated by the Americans? Um, somebody said, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to respond to this? It's not like Americans, it's not like Americans have any cultural icons. What are we going to do? Shoot Spider-Man. I, just... <laughs> I do remember that. And honestly, I mean, Matthew, Ollie is so tired of having to edit out references to Iranian General Soleimani being assassinated by American forces on this podcast. He, he Every had week, evidence. he's got to take out two or three references to that. He was rushing it's... to the airport. He had evidence about <laughs> Kevin Spacey. He was going to testify in that trial. Oh, God, this is all unusable now. What are we going to do with this? <laughs> it's like the biggest in-joke of the podcast, ruined. When COVID settles down, if COVID settles down, what do you see for the future of the alcoholic beverage industry, especially like drinking in restaurants or drinking in bars? To be, to be quite frank, I have absolutely no idea. Um, what will the world look like? when corona is so gone that bank was right to not give you the loan then <laughs> <laughs> yes nostradamus in uh in the local bank here in tachikawa was quite right to be watching the news about people eating bat asses in china um yeah to, to be quite frank bobby i have no idea what the world is going to look like when things do get back to normal yeah uh. This reminds me of a time when I was previewing a comedy show that I was doing in a craft beer pub in Tokyo. And I had a sense that I was kind of being self-indulgent in an inherently self-indulgent privileged space. And I kind of get why comedy is at the bottom of the pecking order uh, as we try and rebuild society post-COVID. Do you not maybe worry that craft beer is the same, that routine drinkers that are drinking out of habit are not going to go out of their way to go, ah, well, I want this beer, but specifically this one, because it's got a little bit of yuzu in it. Uh, or, or, or am I being a bit pessimistic? So I, I, I'm going to come back with a slight counterpoint there. And uh, before I got into Is the counterpoint brewing, about my show not being pointless? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> before I got into brewing, well, actually, kind of it is. Before I got into brewing, I worked in a, a fairly dull office job. I worked in HR. And uh, one of the things that I found unsatisfying about it was I didn't really create anything. Uh, and I read uh, one quite interesting book about how to reestablish society in the case of a total global collapse. Uh, and it got me thinking about something that I could contribute to society. Like if we did all suddenly go back to the Stone Age here, I would be in the village and able to make beer for everyone. Now, it wouldn't be craft beer. But it would certainly be a service that would be appreciated by my fellow villagers. So the corollary is I'd be the village idiot, would I? Exactly, exactly. We need somebody, we need a jester. We need a jester to amuse the king. And I would, I would fall back on the world's oldest profession and sell my body. (laughs) 
Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 50 of Japan by River Cruise, just four episodes away from that 54 episode milestone. Thanks as ever to those who support the podcast on buymeacoffee.com. For $5 a month, you can get access to the episode early and all of the extra bits. And this week is no exception. Thank you to our guest this week, Matthew Boynton of Sakamichi Brewing. For the listeners who would like to purchase JBRC Raft Beer when it goes on the market or any of the other products that Sakamichi makes until then, uh, where can we find you? Uh, you can find us in all the usual places online, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. Uh, just Google Sakamichi Brewing. Uh, and we also have our tap room, which is open every day, uh, a short seven minutes walk from the south side of Tachikawa Station. Um, if any of your listeners are in Tachikawa today, Friday the 28th of August, uh, we actually have a new beer coming out, uh, which is a collaboration that we did. It together better with. not be a collab with the Japan Times Deep Dive podcast. Uh, <laughs> that one, that one is coming up at a future date. Uh, it's a collaboration that we did together with Devil Craft. Um, just a short note: uh, I've been looking over your brewing notes from the uh, raft beer that you wanted mm-hmm. me to make. Um, Natto and Goya might be a bit much. You might have to just pick one of those. As long as you can drink the beer with chopsticks, we don't mind. Or Josie Desnay. Thanks for listening. (laughs) We'll see you next week.